0: <laughs> well, here's the same fucking Big pop The theme's a the fucking red man! How did you burn? How did you burn? How did you burn? That's what she was there for. That was the plan. I'll give you a boner. And <laughs> you got one. Hi, hey, fucking y'all! A, B, C, D, E, F,
1: G, H, I, J, K, L, M, L, B, E, D, R, S, T, U, B, W, L, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, L, B, D, E, 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 E, D, E, D, E, E, D, E, E, D, E, 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 D, E, 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 E,
0: D, E, 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 D, E, 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 E
1: Hello and welcome to a special cage catch up episode of The Complete Works, a.k.a. episode 97 of season one of this podcast. It's a deep dive into the career and films of actor Nicholas Cage. My name is Mike Smith, and joining me to get back in the cage is my friend, co-host and fellow cage-aholic, Mike Triccio. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. I was just right
0: now panicking, trying to think about if I could figure out a way to open up my microphone software and make it sound shitty uh, <laughs> so that I could reveal what we've come to now. But yes. I the 10 <laughs> seconds I had, uh, nothing nothing came to me.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> both of us listened back to one of our earliest episodes uh, to prepare for this one, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, listening back to that, it's like, man, we we've come a long way. <laughs> yes. I think it was episode six.
0: Yes, in 2015.
1: Yes. Yeah, September 2015 is when that one was uh, originally published. And it is uh, a wild. That episode was on the Cotton Club, uh, by the way. Uh, so this is kind of a first for the podcast, because this is sort of a bonus episode in like the mini cage season that we're doing because we're talking about a movie that we've already talked about. It, that's a new that's new territory for us, yeah. sort of old territory because it's a movie we talked about, <laughs> but new territory because we've never done that before. Yeah, we've never revisited something. Yeah, so That was episode six of the show. This is now episode 97 of this kind of new cage season. The Cotton Club was an early cage film in which he played a key supporting role as the brother of the main character, Dixie Dwyer, played by Richard Gere. And we really didn't get much into it in our original episode, but it had a pretty wild production history. Uh, I don't know Uh, if you knew. I, I don't know if you read into it uh, since you've been watching uh, this new version, Mike, but uh, it's it's pretty Damn. insane, uh, which was especially frustrating for Francis Ford Coppola, the uh, director of the movie. He came onto the uh, project late and was originally only supposed to work on it as a writer. Uh, producer Robert Evans, uh, who produced movies like Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown and The Godfather. He had been working on this movie for years. This was his passion project. And Evans was introduced to Roy Radden, a show business promoter through his Coke dealer. Uh, <laughs> That's wow. That's how they got introduced. And uh, Radden wanted to make a movie about the Cotton Club, uh, the actual Cotton Club from the 30s. And he and Evans, they teamed up to establish a production company to make the movie. And then in 1983, Roy Radin was actually murdered, uh, shot in the head, blown up with dynamite to make identifying the body harder. So four people, including a contract killer, were sentenced for his death. And uh, there was a great deal of speculation that Robert Evans may have been involved in the murder uh, just to to deal with, like, royalties for this Cotton Club movie and all that kind of stuff. His lawyer was Robert Shapiro of the uh, O.J. Simpson trial. Jesus Uh, Christ. (laughs) Uh, Robert Shapiro advised him not to testify. He never did. And the case became known as the Cotton Club murder trial and uh, kind of went back and forth for a while whether Robert Evans was actually involved with all that stuff. So that's insane on its own. So due to all the mounting legal troubles and a host of other creative reasons, uh, Robert Evans passed directing duties on to Francis Ford Coppola, who desperately needed the money. Uh, This was (laughs) the early 80s. Coppola had founded his own studio, Zoetrope Studios, and his big blank check swing was an old school musical called One from the Heart. Uh, And that movie was a notorious flop, basically bankrupted the studio, uh, and in turn bankrupting him. Coppola spent all of the 80s and a lot of the 90s working to pay back his debts from that one movie. It's a large reason why the, uh, the Coppola Winery exists, actually. Uh, Oh, that's where he gets most of his money now is from is from the wine. And it's it helped him pay off the debts incurred by one from the heart. Uh, So that's how he got involved with the Cotton Club. But it wasn't smooth sailing from there. Coppola was met with studio notes at every turn, which was something that he had avoided for pretty much his entire career up to that point uh, after having full creative control on The Godfather films, The Conversation, Apocalypse Now, and One from the Heart. And even the year before this, he was able to kind of balance studio picture of the outsiders uh, with his art house take on Rumblefish, uh, which we also Ah. talked about on this podcast. We're both big fans of that movie. Yes. Yeah. Also, very early uh, Cage performance. Yes. Yeah. That's why we talked about it on this podcast. Uh (laughs) I forgot you said that sentence right before I spoke. (laughs) Uh, So Coppola's original vision for The Cotton Club was the story of two sets of brothers, the Dwight brothers Richard Gere and Nicolas Cage and the Williams brothers Gregory Hines and Maurice Hines actual brothers in real life Uh, and Coppola was very disinterested in just making a mob movie because he'd already done that with the Godfather Um, the studio saw it differently thinking that a new mob movie from Francis Ford Coppola surefire hit like you know (laughs) Commercial success, unbelievable. Like, the Godfather guy is making a new mob movie. Uh, So in the original theatrical cut of the movie, which we watched back in the day, uh, the stories featuring the black characters were pretty sidelined. And the story was mostly about Dixie Dwyer's romance with Vera and his brother getting in deeper with the mob. Uh, And The Cotton Club came out in 1984, flopped at the box office, did not do well, got some critical respect, including a few Golden Globe nominations and a couple of Oscar nominations for uh, Best Art Direction and Best Film Editing. But the general consensus... That this was a movie that was basically fine. You know, it had (laughs) some great elements, an incredibly talented group of performers, but it didn't feel like an essential work from Francis Ford Coppola. And then decades later, in 2015, Coppola found an old Betamax copy of his original cut of the movie. (laughs) What? Yes, which ran 25 minutes longer. And over the next two years. He started tinkering with it, spending his own money to restore it to his original vision. Uh, This was basically like a side hobby for him while he and his company were working on Apocalypse Now, the final cuts. Uh, This was like he was already cutting, you know, recutting one of his most famous movies. And he's like, let's let's mess around with this and see if we can make this into a workable thing. And on September 1st, 2017, Coppola unveiled the new director's cut of the movie at the Telluride Film Festival. It finally hit Blu-ray in the fall of 2019. Today, we're talking about The Cotton Club. Encore. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Cat Club. Some of the best musicians in the world playing here.
0: That's Duke Ellington. Ellington. We're here. I'm looking for Mr. Dutch Schultz. Do you know him? Sure. Everybody knows a Dutchman. I need a guy with your kind of talent, musical talent.
1: That too. He's showing off again. Showing off is that you get to be a star. I want to do Broadway. You want to do white show business. I want to make it.
0: I mean, really make it. The white man ain't left me nothing out here but the underworld. And that is where I dance. We got twice as many cops in Harlem as we had three days ago. Stormy weather.
1: Since my man and I ain't together. They asked me to do a song. We're a brother. How could you go behind my path all the time. If I make it, then maybe somebody else has a shot to make it. Maybe even you can make it. Who the hell are you? Do
0: not push people around without some people pushing back. I'll never have figures,
1: you around. It's funny I know all about you. You gotta be careful who you play piano for. What were you doing backstage with him? I was kissing
0: him. Real life. What is it?
1: It's jazz. So, the Cotton Club encore removes about 13 minutes of footage from the original cuts. It actually takes stuff out and then it adds in about 27 minutes of new footage that had never been seen before. Most of the stuff that gets added involved Gregory Hines' character, Man Williams. Uh, and the set that got cut this time around was a lot of the mob stuff, which, of course, Coppola was a lot less interested in. And, of course, a lot of that mob stuff involved Nicolas Cage, which means he's <laughs> in a lot less of the movie in this version. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very short uh, screen time for him. Exactly. That's unfortunate for a Nicolas Cage podcast, but it does turn this into a completely different, and I think we both think, better movie. Uh, I think you texted me as soon as you watched it, and you're like, this kind of rocks now. This is really good. Yeah, You know, going into the Cotton Club Encore, I think we were both somewhat hesitant to review it on the podcast just because neither of us really remembered the Cotton Club all that much, the original version, which, and that's why we listened back to our old episode, just to be like, what do we think of this? Like, (laughs) like, were we fans of this? And I think we were both came away from being like, it's okay. Right? Like, I think we both had like, yeah, Yeah. it's fine. Um, But watching it now, it's like, man, this is, this new cut is really good. Yeah.
0: When I went to log it on Letterboxd, I had given it three stars uh, last time. Yeah. I watched it. Same. so, yeah, it was I guess it must have been like, yeah, this is OK. This is kind of cool uh, kind of reaction to it. Uh, but, yeah, this time around. Wow. Shock, like shocked. I mean, gl- granted, it's basically a first time watch. I haven't watched it since 2015. Sure. I haven't really thought about it ever <laughs> since then, which is kind of the the problem. Right. That's sort of it's like this kind of low impact. Like, yeah. yes, this is a movie kind of thing. Um, and this turns it into something very different, much more interesting, I think. And if you have Gregory Hines in your movie. Like, how is the
1: movie not about Gregory Hines? You know, he's amazing. He is incredible in this movie, and it's crazy to think that most of his stuff got cut out of the theatrical cut. So instead of a pretty decent mob movie, which this movie originally was, this now becomes a pretty terrific hangout movie, Um, just like set in a 1930s jazz club. And one thing that the new footage also does is add in a lot more musical numbers, uh, lengthening a lot of them, re-editing others, and really making this movie much more about the music. Uh, than it was originally, which it kind of always should have been about. Uh, It's it's a movie about the Cotton Club. Uh, So Nicolas Cage appears in this movie as Vincent Dwyer, the brother of the main character, Michael Dixie Dwyer, played by Richard Gere. Uh, Diane Lane plays Vera Cicero. Gregory Hines plays Delbert Sandman Williams. And then there's just an insane list of names that I I had completely forgotten were in this movie. Uh, Yep. (laughs) um, You got Bob Hoskins, you got Fred Gwynn, Lawrence Fishburne, Jennifer Grey, Tom Waits, James Remar, Woody Strode, Mark Margolis, Giancarlo Esposito is in like the background of a scene. I mean, the list just goes on. It's a truly staggering cast.
0: Yeah. One of the things we even mentioned uh, on our old episode was how many Breaking Bad actors were ended up uh, (laughs) or actors from Cotton (laughs) Club ended up on Breaking Bad. Right. uh, Which was pretty cool. And yeah, there was the, uh, the The guy that plays the Dutchman, I don't know that actor's name. Uh, James Remar. James Remar, yeah. Uh, I was the the customs agent from Too Fast, Too Furious, (laughs) which I just (laughs) rewatched and talked about on Mike and Mike Pod. Yes. Uh, And I was like, oh, it's the guy. Uh, He's also, I think, uh, the villain in 48 Hours or something, too, which I had also just recently watched. Nice. He's also Uh, in,
1: uh, I talked about this on our old podcast, which is why I remember it, but uh, he was in Django Unchained. Uh, where he's, he's actually plays two roles in that movie. He's, uh, and I still hold to this theory where this was like intentional on Tarantino's part or whatever, but like James Remar is the first guy that Christoph Waltz kills in the movie. Uh, He's the guy who like owns Django. He's the slave holder. And uh, he's the first guy Christoph Waltz kills. And then, at the very, like, towards the end of the movie, Christoph Waltz is the last guy Christoph Waltz killed is also played by James Remar, and it's, like, a full-circle um, thing in his art. <laughs> amazing. Uh, super crazy. Super wild. What were you going to say? You, you were going to say, like, another thing, and I'll cut you off.
0: I don't really remember. He was also in 48 Hours, like I said, that I just watched. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I'm accidentally doing, like, a James Remar
1: retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> Season three of The Columbia Works will be about James Remar. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> wouldn't be the worst. Wouldn't be the worst. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. So the cotton club encore was directed by Francis Ford Coppola and released, uh, in a time when he's been messing around with older, with his older movies. He put out apocalypse. Now the final cut in the same year. And, uh, more recently he released the Godfather coda, the death of Michael Corleone, uh, which is a new director's cut of the Godfather part three, which I also bought on Blu-ray. I've not watched that one yet, uh, but I'm excited to check that one out. And we kind of talked about a lot of the stuff in a recent episode of Mike my the movies. Uh, we did a let's rank alternate cuts where we talked about director's cuts and assembly cuts and producers cuts of different movies. And we kind of, Discussed like how different a movie can be just with like a few different changes here and there.
0: Yeah, it's pretty wild that you can just re you can take a movie and change the main character, which is crazy. Like, how is that a yeah. thing that can happen? <laughs> That's <laughs> wild. Granted, uh, there's no like particular main character, I guess technically it'd be Richard Gear, Dixie, but there, like you said, this kind of is this kind of hangout just vibe that kind of follows the different characters that interact. Within this club and their lives, uh, yeah, it, know, the tangled web they weave.
1: And, and this version definitely makes Gregory Hines a main character in the movie. Yeah. Whereas I, I believe in the theatrical cut, and again, we haven't watched the theatrical in six years. In the theatrical, he is much more relegated to the sidelines. Uh, so it's it's cool to have him like really take front and center in this movie, especially because I didn't realize Gregory Hines, incredible tap dancer. Um, what <laughs> I I didn't know. I, I I only knew Gregory Hines for a while, for a long time from History of the World Part One. Uh, yeah. which and I don't think he has a tap scene in that movie. I'm, I may be blanking on something, uh, but uh, I don't remember. But I was watching him and uh, I've seen him in that. And we recently saw him in uh, Mad Dog Time, the uh, Jeff Goldblum movie. Uh, yes, we talked about on this podcast uh, and it was kind of cool to see him there. I think he may do a little tap dancing in that movie, actually. Uh, I think so. You know, so and then I see him in this and he's he and his brother, his actual real life brother, just doing these incredible elaborate tap dancing sequences. And then I go to Gregory Hines Wikipedia page and like one of the first sentences is he is one of the most celebrated tap dancers of all time. And (laughs) it's like, well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and to
0: cut that out is wild, a wild decision, I assume, by the studio to make it. The new mob movie, like you said, exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and 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 I think just kind of uh, while we were watching this new cut, I like I said, we can't really remember specific things from the original theatrical version, but just overall, you can kind of feel like, oh yeah, there's just more performances, there's more music, yeah. uh, like it kind of becomes more about the club and and the people that work there. Uh, and, you know, the the whole thing with the Cotton Club is that it's the 20s or starts in the 20s, at least in the movie. Uh, and it's segregated. It's a whites only club, but all of the performers are black. Uh, right. And what that does to the performers and the people and how that affects the whole world around this jazz club.
1: Yeah. That does make it an interesting irony, too, that, uh, you know, it's a whites only right. club that all the performers are black. Uh, and then they recut the movie to make it about the white characters, uh, which is Yo, very Jesus, strange. Gosh. Uh, but the gotten glove encore did get a small release in select theaters on October 11th, 2019. Uh, if you oh. weren't, if you weren't seeing it, you may have been seeing the other movies that opened that day. Mike, uh, which don't even dare. Uh, don't you, don't you dare. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's stuff we've already talked about. Yes. Because it's
0: October 2019 and I, I don't remember. Is it Hobbs and Shaw?
1: Hobbs and Shaw's not in there. I can tell you Damn that uh, the opening movies were The Addams Family, Gemini Man, and Jexy. Uh, uh But Jexy was like that. Adam Devine movie with a smartphone that is alive or something. Uh, I had never saw it. Uh, sure. and then also parasite opened in limited release that weekend, actually, ah. uh, coming in at number 14 at the box office. Also in the top 10, were Joker at number one, Mike's favorite, uh, <laughs> and uh, Monster. abominable Downton Abbey, the movie hustlers, Judy, it chapter two and ad Astro. So yeah, pretty much all movies we've mentioned in this, uh, the box office report before, but, uh, the IMDB plot synopsis for the cotton club reads, meet the jazz musicians dancers owner and guests eg gangster dutch schultz of the cotton club in 1928 to 30s harlem okay thanks (laughs) imdv yeah which i mean not incorrect i guess but uh, definitely doesn't actually tell you the (laughs) plot of the movie uh so mike like we said i mean we watched the theatrical cut of the cotton club six years ago and we talked about it on the podcast back then we went back and listened to our old podcast which is basically unlistenable uh And, and we also dunk on the IMD plot synopsis in that, too, which is pretty fun. <laughs> Some things never change, uh, oh. basically. But yeah, so the Cotton Club Encore, this new recut of the movie. Uh, what were your overall thoughts? How did it contextualize the movie for you, Mike?
0: Um, yeah, I think it, it. the the Encore version, uh, you know, this this director's cut made it much more compelling of a story. Like, I don't necessarily want the Mafia plot to be the A plot. because uh, yeah. it is. You know, it's called the Cotton Club. <laughs> Be about the club, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, like of course there are these 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 mob uh, gangster characters around that world, and the owner with Bob Hoskins and Fred Gwynn and Dutchman and all those guys, and and eventually the Italians show up at the towards the end, yeah, uh, Lucky Luciano and,
1: I, and all them, yeah. yeah.
0: And I feel like probably in the original one that's like a big moment, or the theatrical cut that's like a big moment, like and that's probably fleshed out why the Italians are there and all this stuff, yeah. In this it just it just happens, uh, which is. Cool cool like I, it feels more lived in that way I think and yeah recontextualizing or refocusing the movie on the performers on the music and the and the dancing and everything uh, really brings this world to life and it's interesting too, you like to know that the movie right before this that Coppola made was like a f- musical <laughs> like a regular yeah. straight ahead musical uh, and then he's like I'm gonna sneak it in here in this one I <laughs> <Yeah, same>
1: think <laughs> I'm making the Godfather but I'm actually doing one from the heart again
0: <laughs> yeah uh, which is pretty cool and um, yeah all the performances like acting is really great for Richard, uh, Richard Gere is awesome Diane Lane is amazing uh which we t- talked about like the heartthrob you drew hearts around her name I had such <laughs> a
1: I had such a huge crush on Diane Lane when we were reviewing those movies yeah. uh especially Rumblefish Diane Lane yeah I mean she's amazing yes. she's amazing but Rumblefish Diane Lane uh plus she was in this and uh also I think I watched Streets of Fire around that same time and it was just man perfect she she was uh, so great
0: I, the next movie I want to watch uh is, is unrelated to this but it's Diane Re- Diane Lane related is a. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. So good. Uh, Love that. I haven't seen that. Sounds
1: amazing. Um, Diane Lane and Laura Dern in a punk band in the early 80s. Like, uh, there's never been a movie that's more my shit than... Uh, yeah, <laughs> than and that. apparently the guy, somebody from the
0: Sex Pistols is, like, in the band in the movie. That's, anyway, that's yeah. cool. Um, anyway, Cotton Club. Uh, Gregory Hines. I want to watch him tap dance for two hours. Uh, that's what I'm saying. And this movie basically does it. I feel like Lawrence Fishburne might have more of a character in the theatrical cut, because he's kind of, like, around in the background a couple scenes, doesn't yeah. really talk until... The end when he like kind of intervenes on Sandman's behalf.
1: Yeah, because he's, um, he's more in the mob stuff than he is in the other right. stuff, right?
0: Uh, which is kind of a shame just because he's, you know, I want to see Lawrence Fishburne. He's so cool. good
1: in this movie. Too. Like yeah. The scenes that he's in, he's incredible. <laughs> like, he's awesome. Um, like, I, feel, I feel like recently I've gained like a greater appreciation for Lawrence Fishburne. Like he's always been great. I love Lawrence Fishburne. I remember like getting fucking hyped when he showed up in the John Wick 2 trailer and, you yeah. know, all that, all that stuff. And he's, you know, I love The Matrix and all that. But I think, you know, watching him in deep cover recently for the Goldblum yeah. podcast and then watching Welcome to Hollywood for Goldblum where Lawrence Fishburne appears as, as himself for, like, a minute and is incredible in, like, a, a really short, like, goofy cameo scene. Uh, yeah. And then, like, just popping up here. And I actually recently watched a School Days, uh, the Spike Lee oh. movie with Lawrence Fishburne. And, uh, yeah, he's great in that. Like, it's just, I've been really into... Uh, Lawrence Fishburne over the past few months. He's, he's particularly, the
0: best. particularly the Larry Fishburne era. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I believe deep covers where he shedded Larry and became I Lawrence. Think so. I think is what we we're talking yes. about.
0: <laughs> I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really cool, and and it was I was excited too. And we even talked about this in the, in the episode six. Uh, but but William Kennedy as uh, one of the the co co screenwriters. Uh, is a is it an Albany born Albany focused uh, author that won a Pulitzer Prize in like nineteen eighty four or something I think I guess right. the year this came out for Ironweed uh, which also became a movie Oscar winning movie um, that was really cool and and he, that Ironweed is also like a sort of hangout just kind of about Albany and like what that life is like in the twenties there yeah uh, so like it fits that vibe like that he would have that kind of impact in this movie uh, in the screenwriting at least um, but there's also you know the, I think there are three writers, right? Um, Uh, The other other one is
1: Mario Puzo, who is the author of The Godfather Books.
0: Yeah, I feel like that kind of shines through. Like it is sort of just about this world and we're just kind of getting a glimpse into it. I really, really enjoyed uh, the the refocus on the club and making it about the performances and stuff. It gives it a lot, makes it feel like more vibrant or lively or something, right? Instead of just this kind of like dour, hyper violent, which I always forget that like transfer coppola's movies do this where like all of a sudden there's knives through throats and yes. like explosions of like giant squibs um, <laughs> but like yeah that's this thing um, and this movie has that this cut also has that uh, but like also we get to punctuate it with really beautiful jazz performances
1: yes exactly yeah I'm pretty much right there with you like I, I sort of barely remembered the original cut of the movie and, uh, you know, listen back to the old podcast. It seemed like we both liked it. Thought it was solid, pretty good, but didn't love it. And uh, we also complained in that podcast about how much we would have liked to see more of Sandman's story. Uh, yeah, that like, was the best. <laughs> like we were both talking about like, man, it just feels like, you know, Gregory Hines' story is cut short. And like, I don't know why it just feels like you know, that's that's some really interesting stuff happening there. Why didn't we see more of that? Uh, and I guess we didn't really like do a ton of research for uh, back then. You know, that was like the early days of this podcast. And. Yeah. all that stuff. So I mean, uh, we might not have
0: necessarily been able to find it. If this, it, you know, Coppola hadn't taken the time to rest, restore it. And stuff. That's true. But I like,
1: we wouldn't have known to look for it, I guess. Uh, yeah. you know, I, we wouldn't have known to skim the Wikipedia page and see uh, <laughs> what's going <laughs> on. I think it's interesting that, um, you know, we had that thought then of like, there's an interesting thing happening here that the movie's not really addressing. And then this time around, watching the director's cut, it like unlocks the movie in in some ways. I, like,
0: I think what we've established is that uh, Francis Ford listens to the show. And yes. thanks for doing so. <laughs> he heard us and was like, yeah, wait a second.
1: He listened to a, a 21-year-old podcast with a tinny audio. And he was like, this is, these guys are right. This is, the, <laughs> this, is the, this is the one. They
0: got their finger on the pulse. <laughs>
1: Uh, but yeah, we get a lot more of Sandman's story in this one. And uh, like I said, had no idea Gregory Hines was such a great tap dancer. So this movie serves as like a genuine document for that side of him, which was great. Yeah. Uh, and it just flows better. Uh, it, like This movie just flows better than the old cut did. Uh, and there's a Q&A actually uh, included in the Blu-ray um, from the New York Film Festival, uh, which I watched. It's like 20 minutes long. And uh, it features Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Maurice Hines and uh, James Remar. They're all on it. And uh, Coppola talks about uh, the editing process for the Cotton Club and the Cotton Club Encore and uh, talking about what the studio wanted with the movie. And, you know, the genuine note from the studio is like, uh, less black people, please. Uh, like that's Jesus. What he was, what they were kind of getting at with his notes. And so, and at that point, he was in a position in his career where he couldn't really refuse uh, a lot of mm. things. Like he just didn't have the energy. Like, I think he's just so burnt out from one from the heart and, you know, just really needed to make that money back. And so he was kind of just like, yeah, I'll do whatever like fine but so he's talking about the Cotton Club and how you talking about how making a movie shorter can often make it longer because you're losing the complete story and losing the audiences in the process you know how, how you're losing like key details and like stuff that actually like fleshes out the story and gives it more character because uh, you know you, there, there are so many like long movies that I love that feel like they're a half hour long you know, right. like I'll watch like, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street or I'll Pulp Fiction or something. And those are movies like two and a half, three hours, but like they fly by for me. And then I remember watching the cotton club and one of our big complaints originally, was like, this feels like this feels really long. Like it feels like sluggishly paced and kind of boring. And, uh, now I was like, just really into it. Like it's just like, yeah. having a blast watching all these performances. Like, so the movie is longer now. Like they said, they removed 13 minutes and added 27. So it's like 15 minutes longer than it originally was or something like that. But the pacing is better. The story is more interesting. Uh, as a result and I think that's kind of cool
0: yeah and I think uh, it makes the I don't want to say mob stuff but like the Richard Gear stuff serves as kind of like just the like kind of connective
1: tissue now instead yes. of
0: the, the focus and which that is stuff really...
1: pops more too I think like I, yeah. I was more interested in it because I only got like brief glimpses of it you know
0: yeah exactly at like, the couple times Nicolas Cage does show up you're like oh shit like what what's he been up to like you, <laughs> you know you don't you don't know what's going on anymore
1: Yes, exactly. Cool. Yeah. And uh, also in the Q&A, I wanted to quickly mention that uh, Maurice Hines uh, mentions that uh, their grandmother, his and Gregory Hines' grandmother, uh, she was an actual showgirl at the Cotton Club in the 30s. Uh, wow. And uh, actually like, came to the set while they were filming and was like blown away by how authentic it was. So there's a really, like a really incredible level of like set design and production design that this movie gets across to really like actually establish what the Cotton Club was like. Uh, and it seems like it got that across pretty well uh so that's pretty cool that's awesome there was a, there's
0: a really funny uh thing too that was in the old episode that i just was reminded of uh like just like the direction and like art direction and stuff that i complained about i think in that episode about the the kind of uh the finale to the movie that like kind of starts cutting back and forth between this performance at the cotton club that like at the cotton club they're supposed to be in Grand Central train station yes and they're in this like big dance number and then the climax of like the story with richard gear and his like rise to being a movie star or whatever happens in grand central in real life but like there's like the fantasy thing where like the dancers are also at the train station and yep. it's like cutting back and forth of the the two locations and i kind of like thought that was weird then uh but now that i think that's my favorite part of the movie it's incredible <laughs> like it's this it's this beautiful and i think i think it I think the Encore version, that feels more natural for the story that, that mo- this movie is telling. It feels more it's earned, about yeah. The perfor- yeah, it's about the performances. It's about that kind of weird showbiz thing. Uh, you know, it's less just a Godfather ripoff, which this movie, like, straight up riffs. I mean, can you rip off yourself, I guess? But, yeah. But, like... That sequence where they're killing a whole bunch of people that like they're, they're like taking out hits on everybody that's like uh, going up against them. Anyway, we'll get to that. But yeah, the Grand Central like cross-cut dream sequence stuff that's happening, and then it just kind of the spotlight on the back of the train as they toast to a I forget what they say, but like to to big dreams or something like that with Diane yeah. Lane and Richard Gere to jazz. <laughs> but, yeah, basically, uh, <laughs> wonderful, and the, the scene too uh, <laughs> with the producer, which is like a great. Like the when Richard oh, yeah. Deere does the screen test and he's like, great name, great name,
1: Oh, terrible name,
0: ter- yeah. awful name. We'll change it. <laughs> yep. Uh, great. Anyway, good yeah. times. We'll so, talk about it.
1: So good. It. Yeah, I do think the movie earns the ending better this time around. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I was I was listening back to the podcast, too, and I was thinking to myself, like, did I just not like it because I was like I, like, I feel like I just responded a lot more to it this time around. And did I, like, grow as a person or did, like, the movie, like, change enough where think- it works better? And it might be a combination of both. I think Um, it's a bit of both, yeah, yeah. uh, But I I do love that ending now. Just it's, it's this big, beautiful, like old Hollywood style ending, which this movie, I think, gets across better now in this cut. Because, I mean, in the original cut, you have, like, those, you know, 1930s-style opening credits. They're in black and white and all that stuff, and this Encore version has that, too. Um, But I think just the overall vibe of the movie feels much more in line with old Hollywood now uh, than it does in the other version, the theatrical cut, where it seems like it's trying to be much more of, like, a semi-modern mafia movie. Uh, So, it feels like it gets that ending a little bit better. Like, I think I compared it last time to, like, the Wayne's World mega-happy ending. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, which is which is funny. I'm hilarious. But I mean, <laughs> but <laughs> so
0: good. we're going to use the joke six years later. Exactly.
1: Uh, but but I think this version, I think, r- really earns that mega happy ending. So, uh, yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, cool to see that. Uh, but Nicolas Cage is in the Cotton Club Encore, Mike. Uh, what did you think of his performance uh, as Vincent Dwyer? Um, I think he's
0: really good. And it's it's funny to go back to yeah. Little baby face cage with his like weird accent thing he's got going there, uh, you know, which we talked about. Uh, Grand Isle also, but uh, especially in this era of 1984. (laughs) Young
1: Grand Isle, son. In
0: 1984, that was like kind of a thing we were charting in the first couple episodes of these of the original Cage run. And uh, yeah, I think he's really good in the very few scenes that he's in. And and it feels much more tragic, I think, in this version where like we kind of only get glimpses of him a couple times, times. And this time I specifically caught the... um, Connection where like the first time he's introduced, I think, might be the second time when he's like in the hallway at Dutch's, uh place, where he like calls himself Jesse James, yeah, and a thing, uh, which of course you know, a legendary beloved outlaw, and then sure. after he orchestrates the hit or whatever i forget exactly what's happening where the children are killed in the drive-by yeah and he's like mad dog dwyer or whatever uh one of the like newspaper headlines is like most hated outlaw in the country or something like most that. hated I like,
1: outlaw oh. since john wilkes booth i believe is what they say is that what it says <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> amazing yeah like uh you were so so close uh like you know like to think you're jesse james and end up john wilkes booth i yes. guess um Awful. Uh, it's just so much more tragic. And I, and I feel like not having to watch like all the like kind of silly, gory machinations of that. And I don't really quite remember if that's what the f- original cut is like.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I definitely feel like there was a lot more cage in the original. Yeah, cut. like I remember there being like kind of a structure to the movie um, where it was kind of set in like three acts. And, like the first was one 1929, the second was one 1930 and the third one's 1931. And like the 1930 section like the middle act is all about Nicolas Cage. Uh, oh like that's, yeah, that's, that sounds familiar. Like what I kind of remember is that like it's all about Nicholas Cage getting deeper and deeper into the mob and becoming that outlaw, and then eventually ends with his death. Uh, yeah. And then 1931 kind of picks up like a little bit later, and Dwyer's back in town, kind of thing.
0: So like kind of only getting like the bullet points version of that somehow makes it. Sadder. I don't I, yeah. don't.
1: I don't know exactly how it
0: works, uh, but it, it it manages to pull that off. I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was. I was. It was some ex- extreme whiplash watching, having seen a lot of modern cage movies, and then diving back into this one <laughs> where he's yeah. he's probably like twenty years old here. I mean, he's so young, uh, yeah. which is pretty wild. Again, that was episode six of the show that we did uh, way back in the day. So you know, that's he's only made it's in terms of like starring movie roles. He was in Valley Girl in '83. Uh, cause he had, he had been like fast times as an extra and he had like best of times, the TV pilot, but like, it was like Valley right. girl birdie. And then I think the cotton club, like it was <laughs> like, it
0: was, those, I think rumble fish was oh, the yeah. episode before that.
1: Yes. Rumble fish. Cause he did a couple of Coppola movies in those early eighties because yeah. his uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, and so, yeah. so he got cast in a few of his movies, uh, which definitely helped out. Uh, and of course, Peggy Sue got married. will be the next one where he does his hilarious nasally voice. Uh, <laughs> yummy, my
0: uh, I think you was it last episode or <laughs> episode six where you literally did that quote. Uh, I don't remember. It's the it's, the
1: it's the thing I remember most about Pegasus got married. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, Yah, me Ma whang. Uh I also remember that uh, Jim Carrey's in the movie and he and Nicolas Cage were in a band together and they sing like right. songs uh, throughout the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think they wear like uh, gold sequin jackets.
1: Yes, it's great. Uh, but it's so Cage's performance in Megas who got married is so bizarre and so weird uh, because he's like ostensibly the male lead of the movie. Uh, yeah. And he's just like this like total loser, nebbishy, like nasally voiced dude. And that's like his voice for the entire movie. Like even when, <laughs> yeah. like even when she comes back to the future, like the present day, like he still has that nasally voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's awesome. It's really great. <sighs> Apparently Kathleen anyway. Turner hated it. Like she, like, I think she was nominated for an really? Oscar for that movie. Uh, and she like hated Cage's performance. She was like, he's not taking this seriously. <laughs> like, Wow. All that stuff. Fascinating. But uh, he went with it. And the then and the next year he was in Moonstruck where he was a much more, uh, like I, I was going to say traditional Romantic leading man, but also he's fucking weird in that movie too. He's <laughs> <laughs> I lost he's weird my in- hand. <laughs> I lost <laughs> yeah. my pride. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah. Let's just start over. Let's go back to that, back some <laughs> time. Re-record the old episodes. <laughs> word for word, but with better audio quality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It'll be like I mean, Taylor Swift re recording all of our old songs, but us recording yeah. our old <laughs> We need the new masters. Exactly. exactly yeah. We don't want that, uh, that fucking guy, whatever his name is to get control of our podcasts. Uh, Scooter Braun. Uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> not a real name. That's the name of a character in cotton club. Encore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got me, Mike. You got me. Um, <laughs>
0: There's a really amazing moment. I don't, we're, we we do not have time to go through the whole movie. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I was kind of planning on that. Like, you know, we we've talked about the movie in the past. So I figured we'll just talk True. about it in broad strokes. Like I'll, I'll say we'll run it down, but like, it'll be a little bit broader than usual. What, what were you going to say? <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, there's one line where uh, Fred Gwynn s- s- t- says, "I don't trust men. <laughs> I don't trust people with nicknames,"
1: and I don't know. That's hilarious. Yes, I, l-
0: I, l- I love. I'm so glad Fred Gwynn's in this movie.
1: Fred Gwynn is amazing. Actually, in the Q and A that uh, Coppola has on the Blu-ray, uh, he says the first thing he did when he got hired as director was cast Fred, Fred Gwynn, uh, and <laughs> apparently Robert Evans was very mad about it. And wow. his his direct quote was, "We can't have a monster in this movie." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how do you, I want a monster in
0: everything. I what want a monster in all the movies. Yeah, it's, yeah.
1: <laughs> remember when Wandavision like kind of parody the monsters theme song it was amazing. Let's just do monsters. The stuff. best part. <laughs> it's the best part. Uh, yeah, and also Fred Gwynn. It, it like like uh, we talked about this in our old episode, but like I I had thought this before I listened to the episode because I listened to the episode after I watched the encore version. The Fred Gwynn Bob Hoskins stuff is so good in this movie. <laughs> Incredible.
0: Yeah, some of my favorite stuff that's like kind of like the tertiary to whatever is going on in the movie. Uh, but just like literally the visual. G- joke not not even really a joke but just the visual of bob hoskins next to fred gwynn yes. is the
1: greatest thing on earth yeah short dude tall dude it's the abbott costello uh, you know dynamic. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's perfect it works yeah. uh and like their like just genuine bromance uh kind of throughout the movie uh is incredible which is a phrase that i thought of while i watched the movie and then when i listened to the episode i said it six years ago but i had forgotten <laughs> everything about it and like watching it like like it kind of triggered some stuff in my mind. Like, oh, yeah, this was great. And like the one scene where uh, Nicholas Cage has kidnapped Fred Gwynn uh, and, you know, Dixie shows up and gets him to let Fred Gwynn go and all that stuff. And Fred Gwynn like reunites with Bob Hoskins and he gets like pissed off at him. Like, you spent 50 bucks to bail me out. And, you know, he smashes Bob Hoskins watch and Bob Hoskins like 50 bucks. What are you talking about? I spent 50 grand to get you out. And Fred Gwynn's like 50 grand. Really? And Bob Hoskins like, yeah. And then Fred Gwynn like reaches into his pocket and pulls out like a present for Bob Hoskins and he opens it and it's another watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the funniest thing. It's so good. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's like all ashamed. Yeah. Like, he's he's <laughs> just shy of like kicking the kicking the floor when he hands him the, the gift. Yeah. But I love that he had that as like his backup. Like he just, just yeah. in case he actually did pay a lot of money for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he, he had planned his whole thing out. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, so good uh, so good but anyway Nicolas Cage good in the movie uh, and like I said you know he's he's in a lot less of this version of the movie but as a result like there's it's sort of better uh, and I know Coppola has said his vision was to tell the story of two sets of brothers but it feels like for this half of the movie for like for the half focusing on the white characters he is much more interested in Dixie's relationship with Vera than his relationship with Cage I think
0: yeah Cage is definitely not a main character like, he doesn't really get that much uh Fleshing out, I guess. Besides just the fact that he's kind of screwing things up for Dixie, yeah. Um, which, I guess, although I guess, like you know, with the Williams brothers, with Sandman and uh, I forget the other character, Maurice Hines. Um,
1: character. I'm blanking on what his character's name is too, but yeah, Ma- yeah. Maurice Hines, Gregory Hines' is real life brother.
0: Yeah, them. Uh, it's kind of the same thing, though. Like Sandman is definitely like the main character of that plot. Yes. That like also his brother is in. Um, yeah. And it's also yeah. about
1: him like like finding romance in the cotton club with meeting this girl named Lala and all that stuff. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cage is definitely, you know, relegated to sort of the the sidelines for both of this movie. Yeah.
1: But he is solid. He gets to be a little bit weird, a little bit shouty. Uh, I did really like him uh, introducing Jennifer Grey when they got married, uh, which yeah. I was so excited to see Jennifer Grey in this movie. I completely forgot she was in it. Uh, and, you know, this is like a couple years before ferris bueller and dirty dancing and stuff so this is like a really early role for her uh and she's barely in it also she's like if nicholas because she's tertiary to nicholas cage's character and nicholas cage is now barely in the movie so she's barely in the movie now too um but i did really like him like introducing jennifer gray and be like oh this is my wife and then like you know they just kind of leave the the room and go have sex in the other room and he's like shouting at the wall (laughs) yeah (laughs) like like uh, messing uh, with them yeah
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah Yeah it is like a weird weird look into like poor 1920s life right that like Yeah I guess, I don't know, whatever. They don't seem too destitute, uh, but like, OK, just go to the next room over because me, I have to talk to mom in here. <laughs> like,
1: OK, yes, exactly. But I did like uh, you know, there's a, a scene later in the movie where he brings Vera back home and his mom's there and it's just like, oh, yeah, my mom's here. Like, oh, what can you do? It's yeah. the 20s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so I was going to usually ask, you know, how does this fit into the roles that we've seen Cage play so far? But. This is a role that we've seen Cage play so far. <laughs> this is it is yeah an older one. But do you have anything uh, in mind for that question, Mike, that you would want to throw out there?
0: Um, you know, I didn't even really think about it at all. But I think just in that the it it fits this cut fits sort of like the roles that Cage was getting at this time. Like, I feel like maybe the theatrical cut was a little inflated. Like if the whole second act is about Cage yeah. uh, at this point, he's been in like two leading roles or whatever. He will be in another one after <laughs> this, but like he's also barely in rumble fish from what I remember. Yeah. Um, I think he's like um, Matt, I Dil- seen Matt Dillon's
1: while. friend. I think Rusta James is uh, his yeah. friend <laughs> in that movie. Yeah. Yeah,
0: with the big like pompadour thing going on. Um,
1: Yeah. Rusty James, Motorcycle Boy. Uh, Yeah. Such a fucking good movie. I can't can't believe you remember that. That's amazing. (laughs) I haven't seen seen it since we reviewed it on this podcast, actually. Uh, I've been I was thinking to myself, I should get the criteria to that like next time they have a sale because that's that's great movie. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: But yeah, this cut, the encore feels more in line with where Cage's career was in 1984. And it kind of makes sense. Um, As him, just like sort of as this like kind of character actor kind of guy at this point in his career uh, or supporting guy. That's that, I guess. (laughs) Yeah,
1: fair enough. I did think it was kind of fun to see uh, Cage and Fishburne in this uh, after just watching Running with the Devil. Yeah, I I don't think they share a scene in this movie, but still kind of cool to see uh, both of them pop up in this. uh, So there you go. Uh, But all right, so let's run the movie down scene by scene. And like I said, kind of be talking more in broad strokes this time around because we've talked about this movie already and we've, we've yeah. kind of talked about a lot of the key stuff already, but it starts off with the black and white 1930 style credits. Also note that uh cornet solos are by Richard gear. Like he does his own cornet solos in the movie, uh, is wild. which is pretty cool. And in the Q and a, on the blu-ray actually Coppola talks about Richard gear and says that uh, Richard gear would only do the movie if he could be a musician and not a gangster. Um, but that posed a very specific problem for them because there were no white musicians in the cotton club. Uh, Oh, <laughs> and wow. so they had to like manufacture a way to get Richard Gere to be a musician and also kind of be like related to the gangster plot, but not be a gangster himself. Like They had to walk a really fine line for that character uh, to get Richard Gere oh. from the movie. <laughs> That's cool. I didn't think I didn't know that. That's wild. Yeah.
0: And then he kind of, you know, has that kind of moment at the end where now he's come back as returned as the big movie star guy. Uh, so he gets to perform there
1: exactly yeah so uh, they figured that out plus like Cab Calloway is there and they're like buds they like high five like yeah man we're friends (laughs) Uh, that was awesome it's great so good And yes, yeah, so there's that, you know, opening sequence, like that opening scene where they're at the club and like dynamite explodes and Dixie's like, oh, man, yeah. we got to get out of here. And he takes Vera into the hotel room and takes care of her and all that. I'm pretty sure it was in the original cut of the movie.
0: Yeah. And I don't remember. There's a couple moments. I don't remember when the first one was. I feel like it might. No, I don't think it's at this point, but you can tell there's a couple moments where like the f- picture quality dips. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this must be recovered footage or whatever. And it's not like awful like it was like I talked about on the Mike and Mike director's cut episode when I talked about um uh, once upon a time in in America right uh where it's like oh this isn't even color corrected there's like there's nothing going on uh but yeah there's a couple moments and and it had, one of them happened sort of early where i was like ooh like i kind of got like interested in, in as far as <laughs> like the kind of restoration film nerd part of me yes uh was like ooh what's this going to be like how much lost foot quote unquote lost footage is going to be featured and there's only a few that you can like notice.
1: Yeah, I think they did a pretty good job of actually like restoring the movie so it's fairly seamless throughout but there are a few moments where it's like okay that that's clearly uh yeah. added in stuff that wasn't in the theatrical cut. But uh, yeah, so that all happens. It takes to the hotel room uh, and like the next morning you see the Williams family and they're all just like dancing and singing at breakfast. And man, it's so great. Gregory Hines, (sighs) one of the best. He's incredible in this movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's one of the greats. It's it's uh, it's uh, I love whenever he shows up and I like same kind of thing. I think I mostly knew him from History of the World Part One. Anytime he's in it's it's awesome. I I I still don't Ah, studios are dumb. Yeah. Do,
1: <laughs> so why would you want to cut him out? How do you watch like this version of the movie? Um, which I mean, this, this isn't the, the exact same like vision that he was originally going to release, you know, back in 1984 and then had to cut down, but it's very close to what he was originally going to do. It sounds like, like he seems very satisfied with this new cut of the movie. Uh, so that's, yeah, you know, good to see at least, but, and you get a lot more Gregory Hines, which is always good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this, this session too is mostly uh, the same. I definitely remember like, it's weird that I, I didn't remember a single thing about this movie, but then, like, as it's, I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah. OK, yeah, 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 yeah. And like the, them walking to the Cotton Club to audition after breakfast that day and like that kind of section, I feel like it's mostly the same.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think you're right, too. So, uh yeah, uh, all that stuff, you know, he's dancing and singing at breakfast, Cage getting married to Jennifer Grey and all that stuff. Uh Sandman passes the audition at the club. They do note that uh, you still got to use the back door. You can't like yeah. walk in, you know, with the white customers. You got to go in the back and. All that stuff. So there is uh, that kind of undercurrent running throughout the movie. But yeah, so Cage uh, gets on Dutchman's payroll, and uh, they have these scenes with like the mafia scenes. The D- Dutchman uh, stabs a guy in a throat in the throat yeah. who is insulting the Jews. I think it's Tom Waits as uh, the guy no, he stabs. Tom
0: Waits is the Cotton Club owner. Or, okay, or
1: not the not the MC or whatever. He plays Stark, I think. Right, is his name. Yeah, uh, I stuff, think. something along those lines. Which every time they say like "Mr. Stark," I'm like, "Iron." Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm like, no, the guy um, uh, that that Dutchman k- kills is like this other bootlegger mob guy that like they've kind of agreed to a truce, yeah, uh, for right now. Like, and I don't really exactly. I think like there's too much heat after that the bombing at the, the beginning, kind of thing. So they kind of agree to like let things cool off, which is like kind of brokered by Hoskins and Fred Gwynn, uh, who I think are the owners of the Cotton Club, like the actual owners, right? But he keeps like. I forget he's i don't think it's because he's insulting jewish people but like that's definitely happening there's a lot of just like you know this is 1929 casual racism going on which is like weird uh, or uh, you know but i guess that's what it was and the the dutchman you know dutchman being such a a hothead uh grabs a giant fucking like mike myers michael myers (laughs) knife just (laughs) bow right through his throat and that was the first time that i was like oh yeah, it's a Francis Ford Coppola movie because it's right. like big and juicy and
1: there's blood everywhere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Coppola,
1: Coppola comes from uh, Roger Corman movies. He, uh, yeah. he did. His first movie was a, a Roger Corman movie called Dementia 13, which I own on DVD. DVD. Uh, wow. and have watched and uh, remember nothing about, but it's, <laughs> but I yeah, have just it. like the <laughs> kind of, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but that, that's part of like a Roger Corman collection. I got when I was like 17 and I watched it then uh, and haven't seen it since. Nice. Uh, but yeah, so he stabs the guy in the throat. The blood goes everywhere. It's like on the chandelier. It drips down on Vera's face. Yeah, I mean, it's a, an it's, awesome shot. It's really great. Uh, so that's all happening. I also really like the, uh, there's the one take shot of uh, the Dwyer family entering the club. And uh, Cage is kind of like being a dick the entire the entire time.
0: Yeah, he's like yelling at the performers and like wants a better table and all this stuff. And uh, I forget exactly what's going on. But it's, you know, the kind of first, uh, you know, indication of he's it may not be long for this uh, world. Yes, (laughs) exactly. He may not be Jesse James after all.
1: Yeah. And it's it's like uh, Dixie and the mom and Cage and Jennifer Grey are all there. And that they meet like they see Dutchman and. I think it's Dutchman or maybe it's Bob Hoskins who like talks to Dixie and is like,
0: yeah, that's the mom who I think is like was an actor or wanted to be an actor or something like that. And she recognizes Bob Hoskins character as like, Mm. oh, that's Mr. Broadway. He produced all the shows. I'm going to introduce you to him, Dixie, even though they've already met and she doesn't know. Yes. Kind of (laughs) thing.
1: Yeah, that's what it is. So it's Bob Hoskins and, you know, Dixie's talking to him. And uh, I think he mentions that uh, Dutchman hired him to play piano uh, at some point at a a function. And, uh, you know, Hoskins she's like be careful who you play piano for around this time. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, so good. Hoskins, I love Bob Hoskins. Hoskins is so good. And we've talked about that in this podcast before because he was in the Jeff Goldblum movie, uh, the right. favorite, of the watch and the very big fish. Uh, but he's great in that movie too. Hoskins is the best. Um, but Hoskins, yes. Hoskins season three, is that Hos- Hoskins season three. It's a, it's a potential thing that we could possibly do. Um you know he's been in a movie with both. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nicholas Cage and Jeff Goldblum. We'll, we'll break our one rule. <laughs> We'll
1: just talk about about it again. It's fine. Uh, We're doing it right now with Cotton Club. Might as well uh, go all the way. Uh, If if they release new director's cuts of The Favor of the Watch and the Very Big Fish (laughs) and a second director's cut at the Cotton Club, then I think uh, we should do a Hoskins season. I'm in. But uh, yeah, there's a big musical number. The Creole Love Call song is happening. And then the, the Williams Brothers tap dancing. You get to kind of really see that showcase for the first time. And man, like, again, like they were Gregory Hines, Maurice Hines, real tap dancing duo in real life. I mean, in addition yeah. to being brothers, uh, obviously, but they, you know, tap dance for many years, like, you know, huge on stage and all that stuff. And their dad tap dance with them too. Like they were just all over the place. Oh. And then Gregory Hines really got like a good film career. And, uh, you know, was able to showcase his tap dancing on screen here in the Cotton Club, which was so cool.
0: Yeah. And I think you can really tell like that they're actually brought. I mean, one, they look alike because they're yes. brothers, um, but like it, it lends like an extra layer, I think, to the movie. I don't know. Something that would be like stunt casting now. Uh, you know, I don't know. Like I f- it felt like a weird modern thing that would happen, but it would be like part of the marketing yes. um, kind of thing. But in here, it just feels like a genuine uh, performance. And and you can really tell, especially in the dance scenes with them, that like they can just do this together naturally.
1: Yeah, they've got that chemistry, uh, which is yeah. awesome. And so their tap dancing is amazing. Uh, Dutch hires Dwyer to hang out with Vera, show her a good time, which never works out for mob bosses. I don't know why they keep doing this in movies. Yes. <laughs> But like, either they're going to fall in love or they're going to have to, like, you know, solve an overdose problem like in Pulp Fiction. Like, that's basically right. what's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so that that that's part of the original theatrical cut of the movie. And then I think what, what you really get into here is, uh, I mean, Hines is, uh, you know, trying to impress Lila, one of the girls at the cot Club. And uh, there's this great sequence where um, he starts singing to her while she's, like, eating lunch or something. He's singing to Lula Bell from Tennessee. Uh, Mm -hmm. right? And it's this, you know, just really great, like off the cuff, like semi musical number, like outside of the stage. Like it's, you know, this movie like flirts with being a full on musical at at times. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're
0: it seems like they're kind of at like this, like an auditorium, like a rehearsal space or something for the Cotton Club people or where the people from the Cotton Club, the performers rehearse. Uh, And he says, like, I'm trying to impress this girl. Somebody help me. And this woman gets up and gets at the piano and then he does this big performance. Yeah, it's
1: like Amazing. I feel like that might have been in the original. I don't remember that might have been. But the scene right after that, I think almost definitely was not. And uh, what was that the big tap dance contest that's happening in the underground poker room? Oh uh,
0: yeah, yeah! Like the boys' club room. Or yes, whatever. that was they're amazing. Like,
1: they're like, "Oh, we don't let girls in here because we tap dance." And, like, <laughs> uh, and it's the best scene in the movie. I can't believe it was not in the original concert. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Uh, that scene is is awesome. Yeah, because it's, it's like Gregory Hines and Lila. He's like wooed her with a little bell from Tennessee, and he's like, "Let's get married," and all that stuff. Yeah. He's like rushing her down to the to the underground room to tell it's the like boys. Like Elks club. Yes. <laughs> And all the old guy, all the old guys are there. It's just like, oh, you, you can't allow women in here. And it's like, why not? And it's like, because we they can't do this. So he starts tap dancing and everybody gets in like a big circle and they'd like take turns, like getting in the center and start t- doing their own little, little tap dancing routines. It's the best.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's light. And it's like a couple of minutes long. It's like pretty significant for yeah. what this could have been. And it's great. I had a, had a blast with that. And I'm so glad it's here.
1: Yes, exactly. I, I like it, that completely justified the Cotton Club encore in that like one sequence. <laughs> I think like this whole movie's reason for existence was to bring that into light. It's so good. Um, but yeah, that happens. And then uh, you see Dixie and Vera. They've been hanging out and uh, I think Dixie like spills a drink on her and they have like this sort of antagonistic, sort of flirtatious relationship. And then there's the one scene where they kind of dance and fight at the same time, uh, which which yeah. I think was in the original cut. Like that, 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 that was seemed very familiar, familiar, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely awkward
0: when she slaps him and then he slaps her and then the room applause applauds <laughs> like everyone thinks it's like this new like part of the show. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And they like, I kind of all join in and like other women start slapping their partners and stuff. <laughs> uh, so it's like kind of goofy. But like, I was like, what the fuck? Like, what? Yes. <laughs> um, yes. But yeah. It's the, the, the brewing tension. Yeah.
1: Know? The sparks are flying between the two of them and they have sex like shortly after this like big kind of dance fight sequence. Uh, and then you got the stormy weather song. Uh, which also cut from the original theatrical ca- uh, version. Also insane because it's incredible. Uh, I'm not sure who it is singing it, like whether, which one of the performers it was that sings the song. But that was cut from the original and it is so ridiculously good. Like it's a genuine yeah. showstopper, I think. Uh, and I can't believe that wasn't in the original version. It's, it's nuts.
0: Yeah. And I don't remember if that is a like historical figure, that character or not. Because, like, you know, they mentioned like Duke Ellington is leading the band at one point in the beginning. And yeah. it's Cap Calloway at the end uh, and like a couple of other conventionally famous jazz performers from the 30s and 20s and 30s are featured. But yeah, that that this scene is incredible. That performance.
1: Yeah, it is so, so ridiculously good. And that's kind of like the halfway point in the movie where they do that song. Uh, and at this point, Sandman, uh, you know, he gets a solo shot. He gets like his uh, shot to do like a solo like spotlight on himself. But uh, that upsets his brother. Um, You know, his his brother, they kind of had like a falling out as a result of this. Uh, And I think what's interesting about the parallels between the two brother plots between uh, the Williams brothers and the Dwyer brothers, the Dwyer brothers uh, plot ends in tragedy with cage, you know, becoming an outlaw and then ultimately being killed. Uh, with the Williams brothers, they get to reconcile at the end. They get to have like yeah. the, the happy ending and they get to perform again. That's it's a delight. They're so good.
0: Yeah. That's that scene too. When it's, it's not the cotton club. I don't think where they reunite. It's somewhere else. No, It's
1: wherever his brother is performing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause at that point they fallen out and Sam ends at the cotton club and he's somewhere else. Right, right, right.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, he, you know, he he calls Saman up to like perform with him, and and they do that
1: whatever song it is. I forget that that yes. one
0: routine, and then they kind of just like pause and look at each other and miss whatever beat is happening at the end of the song. Yeah, and they're just, so like,
1: they're so overcome by emotion uh, at yeah. the, at their reunion that uh, they stop the dance and then just, just like hug it out. Uh, yeah. And it's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful, and and like. Uh, I just wanted Gregory Hines to be happy, you know, Yeah, in exactly. this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah. Old school movie making, man. It's uh, it yes. works. It works. But uh, yeah, so Sandman goes solo, obsesses his brother. Uh, and then you have the scene with uh, Dwyer's screen test. Dixie Dwyer, uh, you yeah. know, testing out to be an actor in Hollywood. The executives watching the scene, it's so funny. And it's just like this one bit where it's like, this one producer who's like calling all the shots and one guy who's like the yes man, like yesing everything the guy says, like, well, the kid, uh, I mean, the kid's got a good face, but he can't act it's like you're right. He can't act. So will get rid of him. It's like, oh, but we'll give him a shot. All right, let's give him a shot. And all that. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
0: What's his name? Dixie Dwyer. Great name. And then the producer, the executive's like, ah, oh, that's a terrible name. It's like, oh, right. that's an awful name. Get, yeah. We'll make him change
1: it. <laughs> Great. Yes, so, so good. Uh, and so he uh, ends up getting a shot in Hollywood. And uh, meanwhile, Cage is uh, becoming more of an outlaw. I think he uh, is the Cotton kind of club that he enters where he comes in and shoots up the place. Or is it a different place?
0: No, there's also the weird plot. This is the weird. This felt very disjointed in, in this edit. Well, not disjointed, but it feels a little weird without the focus on the mob stuff, because there's also the the plot line with Lawrence Fishburne's character. Is there run like the lottery? <laughs> Or something, or
1: a lottery, like yeah. a
0: numbers racket, whatever that means. It might even be horse races. I don't even know. There's
1: definitely a newspaper um, that says numbers war in Harlem. You know, yeah.
0: And Dutchman and his guys decide to move in on this tear on this racket. Uh, which of course it's predominantly black characters, black mobsters, uh, gangsters, whatever, Lawrence Fishburne and his crew. Uh, and then these guys move in and that's when they shoot up the, the like black bar where they run this numbers racket thing out of. Yeah. Uh, And he has some line, I forget what it is, where he like shoots up the bottles behind the bar, the Tommy gun. But it's very funny.
1: Yes, <laughs> <'Cause> it's Cage. <laughs> Take our word for it. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So Cage shoots up the place. There's numbers war in Harlem. Uh, you get another musical number here with the the cheating man song is what I called it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly yeah. exactly what the name is, but uh, and I think this might have been in the actual cut, maybe in shorter form. Musical number where a woman's like accusing this guy of, of uh, cheating on her. And he's like, no, I didn't. And then at the end he actually did. And it's very funny. Very fun. Uh, and then you get the scene where Gregory Hines meets uh, Lawrence Fishburne and uh, they're yeah. they're incre- again, Lawrence Fishburne, incredible in this movie. I mean, incredible in everything. Um, but like, you know, he has like that whole monologue about like being black and being a gangster. And, you know, I've got like there's almost so many things that I can do. I can see the cotton club and I can't go inside, you know, all that stuff. I've got to do two things to stay in line. I got to stay black and I have to die. Like Lawrence Fishburne, perhaps like Lawrence Fishburne and Bob Hoskins together in one movie, man, like two of the best. <sighs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and he's got. He's also very young. I mean, I forget how old he was when they made Apocalypse
1: Now. When he they was, lied about it. He was fourteen when he made Apocalypse Now. I'm pretty sure And he lied about being seventeen. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, and although by the time the movie came out, he actually was seventeen <laughs> because it took forever. <laughs> <laughs> True.
0: But yeah, he's very young and he's amazing in it. And yeah, because one of the Sandman's got this. This like bouncer guy that's like patrol. I don't know what do you call him. He's kind of like patrolling the behind the stage, uh, area, area yeah. at the cotton club. And he's present preventing Sandman and Lila from like being a couple. Cause like they can't fraternize or whatever. Uh, and this guy's giving him a hard time and beats up Sandman. All right. He like drags him into the kitchen and yeah. chops the cabbage in half with the cleaver or whatever the hell is going on there. Uh, and that's where Sandman like wants to kill him. Uh, and that's what he's going to Lawrence Fishburne about because Lawrence Fishburne is like the mob guy or gangster guy. They don't kill him. I don't think, right. They're, they rough him up. They're like, we're sw- him a swirly. Him a swirly
1: yeah. Well, although, <laughs> Although that happens towards the end of the movie, too, is a thing. I'm pretty sure that's like in the 1931 section. And, and we're, right yeah. now we're still in 29. So he waits two years before he gets his revenge on the mm, true. Uh, which is a little weird. But uh, yeah, so that, that all happens. Uh, and then, yeah, it's 1929. The stock market crashes. Yeah. yeah. Great, great Depression happens. I also like, uh, you know, in the montage of stuff that's like going on to signify the time you see somebody. I think it's Vera, like filling out a crossword with and like with the word gangster. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to specify that we're watching gangsters in this movie. Um, but uh, a little bit of time has passed and Vera has opened her own club. It's called Vera's Club, but it's an all white club. Like there's no uh, mm-hmm. black people allowed in the club. But Lila also performs there uh, because Lila is, uh, is light skinned black and she can pass as white. Uh, right. And so, you know, nobody in the audience actually realizes it. Um, but and, you know, at this point, Dixie returns from Hollywood. Uh, but I like that uh, it really does emphasize kind of the struggle with Lila and like her place in the world, like, you know, in in between the Cotton Club and in between Vera's Club, like that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And uh Vera's Club also like that's what she tells Dutch that she wants like in the beginning or yeah. like when, when there's whatever is happening in the first act uh, with that whole thing. Uh So like it's kind of hinted at that like this is Dutch's Club that he bought her kind of right. thing. And he's there all the time, right? Like he kind of runs his operation out of it, I think. Yeah, it kind of felt like the thing with Gregory Hines and Lila or Sam and Lila is that like Lila leaves the Cotton Club after that incident with the bouncer guy. Yeah. And it's like he doesn't know she's there, I felt like. And he kind of like just, oh, no, he does pass the note to her. Never mind. The doorman. I felt like he kind of like finds Lila outside Vera's is how I pictured it. Right. Like by accident. But he goes to the doorman and, uh,
1: and passes oh, yes. him the yeah, like, note. He like, finds out Lila, that she's performing there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how they find each other. They yes. reunite. Right, exactly. Uh, And so, you know, you're at Vera's Club. Cage arrives to talk to Dutch and uh, Cage wants more money. He's uh, you know, he's he wants more money in this numbers racket Uh, and he he, wants a piece of it. He wants a piece of it. He wants back end points and all that stuff. And (laughs) and Dutch is like, "Uh, listen, I'll give you like a fifty dollar raise. All right. That's best. Best I can do. Uh, And Cage is like insulted and he storms off. And, you know, Dixie's back from Hollywood and he gets he kind of reunites with Vera and. You know, they're having like passionate glances towards each other, flirtatious looks and all that stuff. Dixie gets to play at the club. He's playing his cornet and Vera's singing. And man, it's a delight. It's so good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I felt, too, there's like this kind of weird thing with with Dixie's like kind of like being a stooge kind of character. Right. Like because Hoskins sets up Dixie to go to Hollywood to be like their front man, like for their mob. He's like, I want you to go be like the eyes of our operation in the West Coast. Yeah. And like it's kind of played up as like, oh, no, he's this beautiful. like, I mean, it's he's propped up as like this new up and coming Hollywood guy. But like everyone thinks he's like this amazing actor kind of thing. And it seems like Dixie thinks he's this a new hotness kind of guy, even yeah. though really it's all fake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kind of thing. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a weird, like, subtext thing that I was thinking about while watching it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Sam and Lila reunite, uh, and they're trying to get a hotel room, and it's a, a pretty, a pretty funny scene where the guy's like flabbergasted, like uh, the, the hotel, yes. <laughs> the desk clerk, because he sees Lila, who he thinks is white, uh, and he sees Gregory Hines, who is black, and he's like, "Oh, we, we, we don't allow uh, mixed, mixed race couples uh, here in the in in the hotel." Uh, and this is where like Lila like officially reveals, like you know, it's like, "Well, I'm black." Like. <laughs> And, yeah, And the guy's like still flabbergasted and doesn't know what to say to that. Cause like I probably, they probably don't allow colored couples in the hotel either. Um, but, yeah, Um But at this point he's just like to like, here's your key. Goodbye. Uh, which, yeah. which is pretty funny. Yeah,
0: And you get the, f- the fun uh, Gregory Hines, like script tease yes. <laughs> moment later in the hotel room. I just, everything he does is inc- like perfect. So uh, good.
1: Like he should have gotten like an Oscar nomination in this movie. Uh, if, if, like the movie had come out in its original form, like in the actual form that it should have been. Uh, Because again, he's amazing in the movie. Everybody in this movie should have got an Oscar nomination. Oscar's Um, for everybody. Gregory Hines, Bob Hoskins. What won the Oscar that year? Amadeus? Like good movie. Sure. But the (laughs) Cotton Club, man. (laughs) Anyway. So after, after that, you kind of get the scene where um, Cage has executed this hit that accidentally kills these kids that are like kind of standing nearby. Uh, You have Cage dramatically eating an apple while it's, uh, while it's happening. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I
1: think that's the kids that
0: die, right? Is the people that sold the kids that sell the Apple? I think so, yeah. Um, Yeah, because it's it's one of Dutch's like henchman guys kills Cage's like partner, like the young, the younger kid that like kind of follows him around. Yep, You know, as vengeance for asking for more money kind of thing. And then and then these like kind of street kids sell Cage's an Apple. The shitty gangsters drive by and kill the kids by accident.
1: Right. But of course, Cage gets blamed for it and uh, now right. he's the most hated outlaw since John Willis Booth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mad Doug Dwyer. Exactly. So a little bit of time passes and like Cage is in hiding and uh, Dixie knows where he is and he goes to Cage. And this is like the first scene they've had together since like the beginning of the movie. Um, yeah. But he goes to Cage and he's like kind of acting in a messenger capacity and, he, you know, Cage has like an arsenal in his room There's like guns everywhere uh, and Cage has kidnapped Frenchie so he's releasing him. Dixie whispers in Cage here, like you need to get out of here as soon as you can um, yeah but I, I love their conversation too, where they're talking about like just think about what you're doing to mom and it's like Cage's like mom think about me like <laughs> all, yeah. that, all that kind of stuff yeah it's not even that Dixie knows where he is it's that
0: Hoskins is trying to negotiate for Fred Gwynn's release yes and the only person cage will take the money from will be will be Dixie uh, you know, his brother yeah Dixie so that's why he ends up there uh, but yeah that like last moment like kind of like please like let me save you kind of yes. deal because up until then he's just like the kind of oh I'm just the leaf messenger guy like he doesn't want to be there kind of thing uh and like you said they haven't seen each other or talked to each other within the movie uh in a long time yeah but he has that one that that one moment to say try to save his brother
1: yeah of course uh it doesn't work uh so after this frenchie returns to bob hoskins they have the scene with the watch and the fifty thousand dollars which is hilarious it's great uh yeah. and then uh, after that they probably well we gotta kill cage basically <laughs> like we gotta yeah gotta you know take him out after this so uh cage is uh, on the phone and uh I'm not sure. Who he's ta- Is he talking to his mom? Uh, Bob Hoskins. He's talking, he calls him. He's talking about Hoskins. Okay. Uh, and while he's on the telephone booth, uh, you know, Cage gets shot and killed. And I think Jennifer Grey yeah. sees his body and screams and runs away.
0: Yeah, he's got dramatic jelly beans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think they're in like a drugstore or whatever. You know. So yes. He grabs a handful of jelly beans on the way into the phone booth.
1: Right. Just like uh, uh, the Hateful Eight, dramatic jelly beans uh, in exactly. that movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the sugar sticks or whatever they got going on. Um, yeah. yeah, big, juicy, gross squibs uh, with the Tommy gun. But <laughs> it yep. lights them up. Jennifer Grey's second scene in the movie. <laughs> Pretty much.
1: <laughs> I mean, she's in that scene where they walk into the club also. But like yeah, she, think she yeah. says anything. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so Cage gets shot and killed and that's the end of Cage. But what's nice is this is like immediately followed by the reuniting of the Williams brothers. Uh, so right. even though the Dwyer brothers are officially no more, uh, the Williams brothers get to reunite. They dance. They get overcome with the motion. They hug it out. It's nice. It's really good.
0: <laughs> It's beautiful. Yeah, it's good stuff.
1: Yeah, so good. And then uh, we cut to 1931, you know, another like, kind of time change montage. Uh, and we're back at the Cotton Club. Cad Calloway singing Minnie the Moocher. It's awesome. Really good. Uh, and yep. th- This is where Fishburne sets the guy in the toilet also. Gives the guy a swirly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And then Dutch's wife shows up and uh, catches him at the club with Vera. Yes. Which uh, she probably known about for a long time. But at this point, she like actually sees him out there in public with her. And Dixie has returned from Hollywood again. Again, he's like back in the Cotton Club and he's hanging out. And like I said, he had like high fives Cab Calloway. And so uh, Dixie and Vera like get out of there. Like they are like we were escaping the situation and they go backstage and they kiss like in the curtains backstage. Yeah. Hasn't he pulled a gun, Dutch? Uh, he's about to. Later? Yeah, because D- oh, okay. Dutch draws a gun on Vera when she comes back. Right. Like Vera, Vera, comes back and, uh, you know, Dutch is like, yeah, come on, Vera we're leaving. And Vera's like, I'm not going anywhere with you. And so Dutch like pulls his gun out and then Sandman kicks the gun away with his tap shoes. <laughs> yeah. Saves the day with tap. Awesome. <laughs> Which I guess must have been in the theatrical cut of the movie, right? Like that must have been yeah. there, but I don't remember it. Uh, but I think it holds a lot more weight now because we've seen how good he is with those tap shoes.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I really do like too, that, that it builds up the friendship between, Dixie and Sandman a lot more because they, they, I mean, and it's in passing a lot, their relationship in the movie, but like they, they care about each other, at least as performers kind of thing. Uh, they you know kind of like like there's a couple scenes where they like literally walk past each other on the street, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Yes, uh, so it makes sense. You know, I, I like that kind of payoff that like Sandman saves Dixie and Vera.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, that's that's kind of the, where their stories intertwine, which is cool. Uh, and then after this, you get this very Godfather esque scene, which, OK, uh, straight up. <laughs> Co- I mean, Coppola directs the Godfathers, so it makes sense uh, that you yeah. go back to this well, I guess. But uh, it, it's, it's really great, too. It's a uh, Sandman's tap dance routine. Um, nice. And it's cutting back and forth between the tap dance routine uh, as the hit is taken out on Dutch to finally kill Dutch Schultz. That's what it was. Yeah,
0: that was I couldn't remember who they were ex- who was being executed. Yeah, it's stuff. Dutch. Uh, yeah, it's Dutch. Yeah. And that's I think Luciano and, and Hoskins. And it's like when the Italians show up is kind of that's sort of what I was talking about. Right. Like. Like they're the Dutch is getting too crazy and he wants to kill like a district attorney or something. I forget they talk about. And they're like, we got to put him down kind of thing. Yeah. And but just the cutting back and forth between like, you know, a beautiful thing like a a baptism. And then also. Yep. (laughs) um, And then also death. And also lots of death. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, And that is like, you know, that is one of the most iconic scenes in The Godfather. It's been replicated many, many, many times in various films and TV shows. I remember uh, we talked about it a lot. Years ago, uh, in like a Game of Thrones finale, where uh, they, yeah, they they were doing yeah, yeah, the same yeah. thing, where I think it was like the blowing up of the church that the Tyrells were in, or whatever, and they were like showing like Cersei, like you know, plotting her like demise and all that kind of stuff, like while it was happening. But yeah, very very similar stuff. So yeah, it's it's kind of wild that Coppola recreated it basically uh, here, but gave it like a jazz flavor to it, which is you know yeah. the whole point of the coffee club.
0: It's weird. I think it's you know I guess it's the guy that I don't know they invented that. I don't know whatever you want to say. Go, did it. B- b- perf- affected it in Godfather at least. But in this it, it also really striking because it is this kind of I think there's no music accompanying Sandman's performance. Yeah, it's, it's just, just the his tap tapping. Dancing, yeah. So it's like really sombre and and intense and it's like the solo thing that like he ruined well, not ruined, but you know what I mean? Like now they've reunited, but like c- drove a wedge between him and his brother. Yep. And then top Tommy guns. <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, <laughs> Big juicy squibs. Yeah. It's awesome. It's a great scene. And just the, the way it like cross cut, it's an edits between those two things. And I think, uh, like you said, this was in the theatrical cut, right? Like we, we talked about this on the podcast like the old one. Yeah. I don't know if it's the exact same, but like this moment. Yeah, it it felt completely fresh to me. Like, I felt like I hadn't seen this before. Uh, And so it might
0: not be cross cut like that. I have no idea. I don't really remember.
1: I'm sure they do the hit on uh, Dutch Schultz and I'm sure they do like a little bit of tap dancing and stuff. But I think this is like a different take on what that scene was. I would have to go back and watch the theatrical cut and like actually compare and contrast, which I'm probably not going to do because now this is like the definitive version of the movie for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: I do remember we did note that one of the gunmen is the guy that plays Tuco. Uh, Breaking Bad. Tuco
1: from Breaking Bad's in this movie. I didn't even notice that. Uh,
0: (laughs) Is it Tuco? Is he the like uncle with the
1: bell? Oh no, Tio. Tio is uh, Tio. Yeah, Mark Yeah. yeah, Yes, he's that makes
0: more sense. Which I think don't think he's in anything else in this cut at least, but he's one of the guys that does the hit on
1: Dutch. (laughs) Awesome. So yeah, that's cool scene. And then uh, we're kind of winding down the movie here. Uh, Dixie and Vera they part ways. Uh, They have this like really great you know. Casablanca-esque ending, you know, where it's like, you know, maybe one day we'll meet in another life, you know, we'll see each other, we'll get a drink, maybe we'll even sleep together, but we're not going to be together anymore Uh, (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the whole sequence in Grand Central uh, Terminal, which, as you mentioned... Incredible. It's uh, also also doing the cross-cutting thing, cutting back and forth from the real Grand Central Terminal to the one on stage in the club, and it kind of creates this, you know, elaborate fantasy setting. But I think what's fascinating is that, you know, you're watching the stuff in the club and people are dancing and singing, but when you're in the real Grand Central People are also dancing and singing in in the terminal, and it like just yeah. creates this amazing cohesion between the two, and it's it's wonderful.
0: Yeah, and there's that really great moment where Dixie and his mom are at the platform, and like he's saying goodbye, yeah. going to get on the train to the West Coast. And there's like this uh, like busker person next to him, or next to the mom, next to the train station. Yep. And the mom is like, "Well, you're you're using your arms too much. Hold on, and let me show you." Yeah. And like she shows them how to do the tap. <laughs>
1: And it's the coolest, like, yeah, like, it was amazing.
0: Because um, I, th- I feel like it's sort of hinted at with the Hoskins scene where she's like, oh, that's Mr. Broadway. He used to do all the shows, kind of moment. Uh, but, like, you know, she kind of uh, talks about, like, she missed her chance, kind of thing. Like, yeah. she was a performer and just didn't get the chance, kind of thing. Uh, and here she is at the big, at the end, you know, the big finale, getting to do a dance routine.
1: Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's going on. Hoskins is getting arrested. He's like going to jail for three months, but he's like so casual about it. She's yeah. like, all right guys, cuff me. And like, I'll see you later, Fred Gwynn. I'll be back soon. And, <laughs> Yeah, I forget
0: what Freguin says, but he says, oh, because he talks about like, oh, you know, you'll be out in three months or whatever. But then the way we got Sing Sing set up for you, freedom will feel like a
1: downgrade uh, kind of <laughs> deal.
0: And it's just like all, how corrupt everything is. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hoskins getting arrested and Dix- Dixie's heading back to Hollywood. When he goes to the train, Vera's waiting by the train with her bag and she look, looks at him and it's this big, grand, romantic, old school Hollywood ending. And man, it really works. It's so good. Like, yeah. just the ending where the like, the train's pulling away and, you know, they kiss and all that stuff. It, it might as well, like, you know, have a, like, fade out with, like, a heart on the screen. Like, yeah, kind of it's just shy and, like, sparklers shooting off the train and stuff. Like, it's so, <laughs> it's almost like that. So, so good. And that is the end of the Cotton Club Encore, the director's cut of the Cotton Club, and uh, it sounds like we're both pretty big fans of this, mic.
0: Yeah, it was really good. I'm glad we got to go back and revisit this. I probably would have never bothered um, yeah. in general. And it's also, I think, uh, if, if you saw the Twitter this week, uh, it's on sale currently. The Blu-ray is on sale on Amazon for $10 right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know by the time this episode drops. I guess we'll find out
1: um, if it'll still be on sale. Yeah. Because Amazon does that sometimes. But uh, I might pick it up. Would be kind of cool. Be worth it. I mean, I bought it for fifteen uh, a little while back because I thought maybe we talk about it on the podcast, and also because I was curious about it. And uh definitely worth it. It's a it's a it's a really great Blu Ray to own. So uh, yeah, definitely yeah. worth checking out. But now let's get into some letterbox reviews. Uh, oh
0: and I have one more thing I want to mention okay. while I'm thinking about it. Yes, just in terms of like people from that era, directors specifically. I'm um, Francis Ford Coppola going back and redoing his movies. Generally, you know, redoing, doing directors cuts, whatever. It seems like generally of the three <laughs> that I'm aware of have been po- very positive, but like his peer with George Lucas, it's, it's, <laughs> it's weird how like one of them is doing it right. Quote unquote, you know, I don't want to totally disparage George sure. Lucas, but like two guys kind of doing the same thing. We're like, ah, I think we messed this up a little bit. Uh, I want to go back and fix it. And it, one it pays off and the other it's it's worse. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think <laughs> the difference is that George Lucas is tinkering with movies that are widely beloved and, mm, and also not really adding any new footage. He's just like tinkering with the special effects for the most part and like kind of changing how those look. Uh, whereas Coppola, he did do Apocalypse Now, like the final cut. He did, did that one again. But I think he was also tinkering with that because Redux wasn't as uh, as beloved as the original one. So he kind of wanted to change it to make it more in line with maybe what he wanted it. Uh, so he's changing apocalypse now redux. He's also changing Godfather three and the cotton club, like all movies that are like, Generally considered not as good, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, and like swinging a miss. Yeah, and he's gonna fix so, it. So he's tinkering with the stuff that like didn't necessarily work the first time around, or in case of, or in the case of Apocalypse Now, the second time around, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like didn't necessarily work that time, and like trying to make them work again this time, which I think is really fascinating. And Coppola is somebody who has a lot of those kind of movies in the '80s and '90s uh, because yeah. of that situation from One from the Heart, where he you know went all in and bankrupted his studio, <laughs> and it's so weird. Like if you look at Coppola's career because he has like the four of the greatest movies of all time released in the 70s with The Two Godfathers The Conversation and Apocalypse Now Uh, and then you look at the 80s and there are some great movies in there like Rumblefish is awesome and The Outsiders is considered a general like you know, generational classic, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And all that stuff. Peggy Sue got married was a big hit when that came out and all that stuff. Tucker, the man in his dream is very good. I like that movie. Um, I saw, <laughs> I saw that in high school uh, and I thought it was good. Um, but then you have movies like the cotton club, like one from the heart, or like if you go into the nineties, you have uh Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is I think getting a reappraisal now like these days that yeah. like people are like, like that's definitely got a cult yeah that, that has a cult following now but at the time was considered like this is like really weird like why is Keanu Reeves in this like that, that yeah. kind of thing or you know yeah Bram Stoker's Dracula and Godfather 3 and like Jack with Robin Williams and like,
0: like <laughs> that's a Francis Ford Coppola movie. oh yes
1: oh my god <laughs> the movie where Robin Williams is like a six year old or he has the mentality yep. of a six year old or whatever it is and also he's dying yeah. or something uh, yeah. yeah super weird uh, so yeah Francis Ford Coppola Has one of the wildest filmographies I think of any that class of directors that like new Hollywood era. Uh, filmmakers because he was, you know, one of those guys, like you said, with Lucas, with Spielberg, with uh, De Palma and with Scorsese and all those guys. And, you know, uh, I think all of them have weird and varied filmographies to certain degrees. But like Coppola's, I think, might be the weirdest. Uh, Yeah, because I mean, look, like just four masterpieces. He won Best Picture, like Godfather won Best Picture, Godfather 2 won Best Picture. They were released like three years apart, you know, like they were like uh, absolutely insane. So, yeah, Coppola one of the weirdest philographies. and actually transitioning into my letterbox reviews uh, the first one I have here is from Patrick Willems who is a, a you know YouTube uh, video essayist uh, or whatever mm-hmm. I think one of the only good ones uh, and <laughs> throw that gauntlet down I mean, there are some very talented people who do video essays and critical analysis on YouTube and stuff but I, I tend to like Patrick Willems videos a lot and he did a video not too long ago about the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola um, and just kind of like really digging into it and analyzing it while also getting drunk on Coppola wine. Um, and it's <laughs> and it's pretty fun. And and so the first review here I have is from Patrick Willems. Uh, it's a three and a half star review, it says watch the encore cut. Apparently, the theatrical cut has way less Gregory Hines dancing, which seems like an insane mistake. <laughs> and he is correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's a four and a half star review from Matthew Noble. Uh, which reads few people can create a cinematic ecosystem like Francis Coppola, whether it's the mobsters and the Godfather, the gangs and rumble fish, the high schoolers and Peggy Sue got married or the various performers and attendees at the cotton club. Whilst one from the heart was sunk for me anyway, by its unconvincing love story, every conflict in the cotton club is immediately engaging and each character is well-drawn. And because it primarily deals with music and dance, this film positively sings as a cinematic experience. I mean, it really sings. Even the relative lack of Nicolas cage doesn't bother me.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is sort of like the thesis for this podcast because yeah, basically Nicholas Cage just barely in this, but you know, still really great. Uh, here's a here's a three and a half star review from the homeless rock star of Palo Alto, which is a great username. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Coppola's The Cotton Club is a strange film to assess. You can really feel the part of him that made The Godfather, as well as the part of him that made Born from the Heart. Uh, these contradicting sides of Coppola create a really unique experience, for better or worse, here. I watched his new encore cut, which, from what I hear, adds more musical scenes, which were by far my favorite. That's the sad thing. There's clearly a beautiful, personal Coppola film jumbled with a less-than-interesting mob story that lacks much focus or tension, which means The Godfather's so great. I think if Altman tackled this kind of project without any studio interference, we get a masterpiece because there would be little to no plot as Altman's interests would lie solely in exploring the jazz scene in 1930s Harlem. It's clear that's where Coppola's interests were, and it's a shame the Cotton Club doesn't reach its full potential, especially since there is so much craft on display. This is also the product of a lot of cocaine, uh, which which I guess should be expected out of a Robert Evans production. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and here's a four and a half star review from Sarah. This is the last one. Francis Ford Coppola made the two best adaptations of the great Gatsby without ever making the great Gatsby. Wow. Uh, which is fair. I, th- I think they're talking about just kind of the 1930s jazz setting with the cotton club being that one. And I was trying to think like what the other one they were talking about, maybe the Godfather and talking about like the American dream and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, li- listeners weigh I th- in, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's what I immediately pictured, but
0: that doesn't really make sense. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> uh,
1: maybe, maybe Tucker, the man in his dream. It's been a while since I've seen it. Could be that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> but in any case, I could see a great Gatsby vibe in, in the Cotton Club for sure. It's great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is the Cotton Club Encore again. We really dug it. It's it's a huge improvement over uh, the theatrical cut of the movie. And I'm glad we were able to uh, reassess uh, a movie that we talked about six years ago on this podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was really fun to go back and uh, t- take a look at this again. And uh, I, I think this is the version. This is the version of the Cotton Club. I don't know if there's much like critical appraisal for this or whatever or re- d- demand or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to say what I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> Clamor. There wasn't much clamoring for a new Cotton Club. Sure. But uh I think it could be kind of ripe for rediscovery for film Twitter. Yeah. Film Uh,
1: Twitter. Yeah. And I think the release of the encore cut has – allow that to happen at least a little bit like there was a lot more interest in this especially because it was a mostly forgotten Coppola movie uh, Yeah, and so it was a weird thing where like oh he's releasing the apocalypse now final cut cool and also he's doing this this is weird <laughs> uh, so yeah the Cotton Club Encore it's on Blu-ray right now it's available on video on demand and it's I think been airing on like Showtime or something like that like it's uh, every, oh damn like one of the- I paid for it I wish <laughs> I knew. <do>. No, <laughs> Showtime or it's Stars or f- one of those ones Like I think it was on the premium channels for a while it's
0: free on uh, on Amazon like the IMDb TV or whatever the hell with ads. And I was like, fine, I'll do it. And I started to watch it and it shows you where the ads will be in the progress bar. And there was 10 of them. And I was like, no, And I backed out and I paid for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I won't take it. I won't stand for this. (laughs) All right, Mike, where can we find you online this week?
0: You can find me at MD Film Blog on Twitter and Letterboxd. And if you'd uh, like to donate to the show, if you like what we're doing, you can do that at our Ko-Fi page, which is ko-fi.com slash Mike and Mike Pods, plural, because we have two podcasts.
1: Yes, we do. And you can find me online at M Smith Blog on Twitter, Mike Smith Film A Letterboxd, and Radio Mike Sandwich on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening to The Complete Works. I'm Mike Smith. That's Mike Decretio. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. If you want to contact us, hit us up at Gold Bloom Pod on Twitter. And you can find the rest of our podcast on Rapture Press, alongside the totally original Geek News podcast, podcast about comic books and movie news and all that nerdy stuff. Our theme song was created by Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your own podcast themes at Kyle podcast themes at gmail.com our logo was designed by jacob honey or at jacob honey on twitter and we want to thank our social media advisor danielle clark as well uh so join us on the next complete works where we're talking a movie that we're both big fans of uh one that we each called among our favorites of 2020 and that is color out of space we made it we made it we made a of color oh, out yeah. of space uh, also a movie that we've talked about before <laughs> yes. Uh, although we use that, like when Color Out of Space first came out, we uh, released an episode of Mike Go to the Movies where we review Color Out of Space in the style of a Complete Works episode. But I listened back to that recently, and I feel like we can go deeper. You know, I feel like, <laughs> especially because you know we'd only seen the movie once at that time. Like and we and we were kind of yeah. like, recalling it from the theater, and now I'll be able to watch it at home. Maybe take a few notes. You know, all that stuff. Really dive deep into Color Out of Space. Uh, Exactly.
0: There's, uh, you know, also some new context
1: uh, (laughs) regarding uh, the director. Also that that we didn't want to uh, just
0: drop an old podcast from before we knew about that. Yes, (laughs)
1: exactly. So we'll be uh, talking about that in uh, that episode as well, which is unfortunate. Uh, But this week's Mike, Mike Pod is a really fun one. Mike, Mike, go to the movies. We're talking the Oscars, uh, which happened this past weekend, uh, as well as the Falcon and Winter Soldier, uh, which ended this past weekend uh, on Disney Plus uh, with music supervisor Kyle Cullen joining us for that one.
0: And of course, Mortal Kombat
1: and... (laughs) We also talk about <laughs> Mortal Kombat, which surprisingly rules. <laughs> the, the cult of Mortal Kombat begins right now, Mike. We're going to be on the right side of history with this one. That's right. Uh, all right. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and thanks for getting in the cage, Johnny Cage. That
0: is Mortal Mortal Comcast. It's no, Mortal Podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Record. Um. Anyway. <laughs> Ha
1: ha ha ha.